Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming out tonight. Um, we're here to listen to a lecture by Gila Mandelson, Reverend Gila Mandelson from Yerushalayim. She is a graduate of Yale University and lives in Jerusalem with her husband and seven children. Her direct downturn talks have made her popular around the world. She's best known for her books, The Magic Touch, The Jewish Approach to Relationships, and Outside Inside, A Fresh Look at Snails, recently released in the expanded second edition. And also Head to Heart, which is uh, on marriage and dating. Right? Let's call on this now. The whole topic of, um, of self-definition, particularly as it relates to ourselves as women and as mothers and, our, and for our daughters as well. And I want to tell you something that happened to me not long ago in a conversation with another woman in North America. We were talking about our kids, and it got to the topic of extracurricular activities. So she told me that her daughter is a cheerleader. Now, this wouldn't have surprised me, except for the fact that her daughter is six years old. Now, I, I you know, maybe I'm over the hill, I'm in a different generation, I don't know, but like, in my time, cheerleading was something that you did in high school, or at least in junior high school. And I had just never heard of cheerleading for six-year-olds. So my first question, of course, was, like, who is she cheering for? And the answer came back, the fourth grade football players. I kid you not. <laughs> so I thought about this for a minute, and, I, and, I, and she showed me a picture of her in her short little skirt and the pom-poms and a cute little smile. And I said to her, look, you know, you're not an Orthodox Jew, but I, like, I knew you way back when. Like, don't you still have enough kind of feminist sensibilities in you to object to your daughter putting on a short little skirt and dancing around with pom-poms and cheering on the boys like being socialized into this cute boy worshiper like at age six? So I was afraid she'd react negatively, but she actually didn't. And she said to me, the truth is it did bother me. It wouldn't have been my first choice for what I'd like her to do after school. But she really, really wanted to do it, and I just didn't feel like fighting her about it. But, she said, I put my foot down one day when she came home from school with a cheer that included the words, shake your thing. And at that point, she said, I went to the coach, and I said to her, excuse me, but I really don't want my little girl knowing that she has a thing, and I certainly don't want her shaking it. So at that point, the coach rather grudgingly agreed to remove that cheer from the roster of cheers. Within a couple of days, five women had come to this woman and said to her, thank you for speaking up. We also wanted to. This bothered us. But we were afraid to say anything because we didn't want to be looked at as proofs. Now, whether one thinks there's anything terrible or indestructive or whatever in a, a girl being a cheerleader or not, that's not even the point. The point is, is that here were a whole handful of mothers who felt that what their daughters were doing wasn't necessarily healthy, wasn't necessarily to promote the kind of self-image that they wanted in them, and nevertheless, were too scared to say anything because, God forbid, somebody might look at them and think that they're approved. And it really hit me when I heard this. 
And being an American now and watching a little bit of TV at my sister's homes and other places and seeing what's going on and hearing what's going on and reading the article about the new rate of passage for 7th and 8th grade girls, okay, in middle school, what they have to be, you know, the Clinton-like behavior that is expected of them, um, really made me feel that we are kind of our daughter's last line of defense in a society. And that if we don't stick up for them, and again, it's up to us to choose what sticking up for them means and what areas are important to us, but if we don't stand up for them, there's nobody else out there who's going to. There's like nobody and nothing that's going to ensure that our daughters grow up with a strong sense of personhood, you know, if we ourselves even have one. So this is a little bit of what I want to talk about tonight, the whole issue of, um, of self-image and how that plays itself out in relation to ourselves as mothers, because so many of us here are mothers, those of you who are daughters can hear what your mothers have to go through, <laughs> okay. Um, just the whole question of self-image. When I think of how I, myself, kind of came to the understanding of what it means to form a self-image, sometimes I think of a metaphor. I think the metaphor of an art photographer. I don't know if any of you have ever done art photography before. Any, any art photographers in the crowd? Aspiring art photographers? Amateur aspiring art photographers? A photographer has um, two skills that I very, very much admire and wish I had. She can look at something, and let's say she can look at a person that she wants to photograph, and she can see a deeper level of meaning in that person, as if that person has a message that she wants to share about herself, something deeper, something beneath the surface. And then she knows how to photograph that person in such a way, by accentuating certain features, de-accentuating others, in such a way as to bring out that deeper message. So that when the photograph is printed, all the viewers of it can, can feel what she felt when she first saw this person, because a message has been brought out. So let me give you an example of what I mean to make it a little more tangible. I once saw a photograph of an old woman sitting on a park bench. Could have been Central Park, could have been whatever park you have here in Detroit. You all see old ladies sitting on park benches. So the photographer who walked by her, however, saw something more. He saw beneath the surface that she had a message. And he wanted to photograph her in such a way as to bring out that message. So what he did was very interesting. First of all, he used black and white film. And I just, I'll ask you to picture this in your mind's eye. He used black and white film, and he photographed the woman in very, very sharp detail, painfully sharp detail. You can see all these deep creases in her face, and these gnarls in her hands, and the hunched, you know, um, hunchedness to her shoulders, and a, a kind of a grim, set, almost kind of spaced out look as she stared kind of blankly at the sidewalk in front of her. Painfully sharp detail. But then the background, in which there were trees and bushes and people walking by, the background was just a blur. Can you picture this? So now, instead of just an old lady sitting on a park bench, what he transformed her into was a statement, a message. And the message was, I am an old person, possibly abandoned, frozen in the painful reality of aging, frozen in time, while life passes me by. Can you see that and how much more profound it is? 
I think that when we think about self-definition and self-image, we have to think about looking at ourselves in the same way as this photographer looked at this woman. Imagine yourself holding a camera and looking through it, but looking through it at yourself. And you're asking yourself, what's the deeper message that this person can relate beneath the surface? What can she say about who she really is, about what her values are, what makes her important? What's the source of her self-esteem? And now, once I decide what I want that message to be, what I want to radiate, practically speaking, how do I create it? How do I dress? How do I act? How do I just go about life in this world in a way that radiates the correct message that I want other people to pick up about who I am? Now, we are always radiating messages. If we don't think about them consciously, we end up just radiating the messages that our society tells us to radiate by simply going, kind of going with the flow and dressing and acting as other people do. And the message that the society is giving women very, very clearly, and you, know, you don't have to be in airports as much as I am and look at all the newspaper stands and magazine stands to pick up this one, you know, is that your, your most important asset and source of self-worth is your body. There's a whole book out now that I read, which is very interesting. Some of you might want to look at it. It's called The Body Project. And what this book does is it traces women's attitudes towards their bodies over the past century. And it, it concludes that in our day and age, a girl's most central project in her life is perfecting her body. More than becoming a great musician, a great athlete, a thinker, working on your character, the girl's central project is to perfect her body. Because we look at one another very superficially, obviously. Judaism teaches that in the beginning, the first man and woman had a kind of vision that didn't allow for this kind of superficialization of one another. But rather, that Adam and Eve were able to see through each other's outside and penetrate their essence to the point where outside and inside were fused together and almost inseparable. I kind of imagine this might be the way a couple can look at each other after 50 years of marriage, where objectively your outside is decayed a bit, and it's not quite what it was on your wedding day, but at the same time, uh, your spouse's love for you has so deepened over the years that hopefully you still look beautiful in his eyes. Why? Because outside and inside have merged. This is a way that Adam and Eve could see each other. Outside and inside is one inseparable unit. Like when you overlap red and blue, you just see purple. A new thing, inseparable outside and inside. Then we're told the snake enters the picture. The word for snake, by the way, is nachash, which comes from the same root as the verb nachesh, to guess. We fell from the level of knowing to guessing, having a guess about who people were, because it wasn't clear anymore. And it's as if the soul part of the person, which had once been so prominent, faded into the background, and the body was kind of in your face. And that is, in fact, how we see people today. It is very difficult to separate somebody upon first meeting them from their outward appearance. Um, I don't know if this has ever happened to you. I mean, it's happening to me now that I'm getting older. But I'll meet someone I haven't seen in 25 years. And chances are they're a little bit heavier and a little grayer and a little bit more wrinkly. And it takes me a, a good several minutes to internalize the fact that this is the same person. Same personality, same kind of smile, same character, but she looks so different and I'm blocked by this new vision of how someone looks. 
Now we're told that when Adam and Eve realized that they couldn't see through to the essence of the other person anymore, they ran to put on their fig leaves, the first clothing. Now I have been fascinated by the whole topic of clothing for a long time. First of all, I, I can't think of anything that takes up more conscious energy in our society practically than clothing. The amount of time and money and energy spent on promoting, designing, selling, and purchasing clothes is just above and beyond. So clothing must be something very significant in our, in our kind of collective psyche. It must mean something very much. It's come to mean an awful lot in my house, to tell you the truth. My oldest daughter recently became a teenager. <laughs> and as anybody knows, by the way, who has uh, daughters born successively, when the first one becomes a teenager, the younger ones simultaneously become teenagers at the same time. I don't know if you ever noticed that. Okay. So I now have two and a half, three teenagers in the house. Okay, ranging from 13 to 10. And there is no bigger topic of discussion than my wardrobe. Nothing I wear looks okay. Everything, everything I have is an embarrassment to them. I used to be sandwich maker, diaper changer, boo-boo kisser. I have a new role in the family. It's called source of all mortification. And, and they've gotten quite brazen about this lately. It used to be I would just come out of my bedroom and the eyes would start rolling. Okay, but now they've gotten quite aggressive and my daughters will actually go into my bedroom, open my closet door, and burst out in peals of hysterical laughter. Now this was really, <laughs> this was really getting to me for a while, I have to tell you, until I spoke to a friend of mine who had successfully mothered uh, two teenage daughters of her own. And she pointed out to me that this really had less to do with me and my wardrobe than with them and their own need to assert their autonomy and their own individuality by differentiating themselves from me. And by calling anything I wore, even if I bought it yesterday in a fashionable store, hopelessly old-fashioned, to make them affirm who they are. And once I realized that, I just kind of like let go. I just let go of the whole issue and started celebrating my wardrobe again. But, um, so style is like crucially central to somebody's growing sense of self and, and, and you know, who they are in the world. But what interested me more when I was looking at clothing was the whole issue of how much clothing people wear. Now, I think National Geographic, I have to censor it because I have some teenage sons in the house and some of the pictures aren't always appropriate, I, I feel. But um, I do think National Geographic. And I've noticed that there is no culture, no matter how close to the equator they live, no matter how primitive, that does not wear something. Now, I would think, to be honest, even in Jerusalem in July and August, there's not really any practical reason to put anything on. And certainly not if you live in Ecuador or wherever. But nevertheless, these cultures will still put on at least body paint. If not clothing, they will put on body paint. And to me, this is fascinating. What is it in us that makes us feel that we can't just leave our bodies alone and just display them as they are? We have to alter them in some way, cover them with something, even paint. So I thought about this a lot when I was writing my book, Outside Inside. And I thought about different examples of people of different ages and how much we expect them to wear. For example, my two-year-old, once somehow unbeknownst to me, got out of the bath Friday afternoon left the apartment and went across the hall and knocked on the neighbor's door. 
And when they opened the door, other people have this experience, right? So when they opened the door, like, there she was, right? And we all chuckled, and it was cute, and I kind of ushered her back into the house, maybe she put something on, sweetheart, you know? But nobody was shocked, nobody called the police, you know? No social worker was brought to look at my case, you know what I mean? Okay, if my 10-year-old child would have done that, it would have been viewed as highly inappropriate, but again, not illegal. Just a cause for significant social censure, maybe, okay? But if an adult pulls a prank like that, then you do call the police. And I ask myself, why are we so strict about clothing for an adult? For a child, is viewed as appropriate they should be wearing some, and for a baby, if they're not, it would be positively enchanting. And it occurred to me that maybe the connection has got to do with how much the soul of a person is active within his or her body. In other words, a baby is born with a soul, but that soul kind of isn't plugged in. You know, no three-month-old child who is wet and tired and hungry can look up at his tired, even more tired mother and say, you know, Mom, I'm, I just, I can't wait to eat, I can't wait to change, I am so miserable right now, but you had a lousy night's sleep last night. Take a nap, refresh yourself, when you're feeling better, you can change and feed me, you know? Because that's the power of the soul, to be able to put anyone's needs before your own, to be able to exercise free choice, to be other-oriented. Now, as a child grows, a 10-year-old kid should be able to see if his mother's lying on the couch and just can't seem to get off of it when he comes home from school. But maybe he'll go make his own peanut butter sandwich, and maybe he'll even bring his mother a cup of water or something. And by the time somebody reaches husband age, you expect them all to say, go to bed, sweetheart, and you wake up and the kitchen's all cleaned up, right? Right. <laughs> okay. The soul becomes more active. We become more other-oriented, and, and simultaneously we expected to wear more clothes. I can't help think of the story that happened, I think it was at Chesapeake Bay, I don't remember where, somewhere in northeastern America where a boat capsized in the middle of the winter in January, and people were in the freezing water, and even those who weren't being dragged down by the tremendous amount of clothing they were wearing were at great peril of freezing to death within moments in the water. And they sent a helicopter over to rescue people. And there was this one man who was like right there with a rope ladder was lowered into the water. He could have gone right up to safety. But he kept saying, take him first, take her first, take him first. He kept putting other people ahead of himself who he felt were in greater danger. In the end, he drowned. And I always thought there would be a special place in heaven for this, for this person. That's like the epitome of what a soul is, of what other orientation is. Few of us reach that level, but as we mature, we should be able to get to the point where we can actually go on a hunger fast for something. We can give up our lives even, if necessary, for a principle that's greater than just living. Jews have been called throughout the centuries to do this, and many have rose to the challenge, risen to the challenge. And we expect people, as they become more of a soul, to wear more clothing. So what it seems to me is that clothing makes an unconscious statement to people. It says, I don't want to be confused with something that's only physical. I don't want to be confused with an animal. An animal doesn't have to wear clothing because it is what it is. But I have a deeper dimension to me. I am more than what meets the eye. If, by covering up some of my body, I can distract you from focusing only on my externality, Maybe I can challenge you or even compel you to look for the real me inside. 
And I think that is a message of clothing. Now, I personally have never met a woman of any age in my life who said to me, I really want to be appreciated primarily for my outsides. We all know we're souls. We all know we have more going on for us. But society is giving us these confusing messages about who we're supposed to be, but many of us ignore that deeper message. And we end up with a very kind of confused form of self-presentation. And I'll, I'll give you a story that illustrates this out of my book, Outside Inside. I told a story about a young woman named Judy, who, having spent some time in Israel, started becoming a little bit more sensitive um, to issues of um, dress, of religiosity, became a little bit more observant. She goes back to North America to visit her friends and families, family, and among the people she looks up is a friend of hers named Laura. Laura is a very intelligent woman in her mid-twenties. She has just finished law school, passed the bar exam, and of course Judy and Laura are going through the clothes in her closet to figure out what she should wear to this very important job interview with a very prestigious firm the next morning. So Judy, okay, the newly sunny observant one, deliberately pulls a mini skirt and a matching tank top off the hanger and says to Laura, why don't you wear this? I bet you look great in it. So Laura says to her, are you out of your mind? What female lawyer would wear this outfit to the office? What do you think I want to be looked at as there? How am I going to be taken seriously? So Judy says to her, oh, so why is it that when we go out to a party on a Saturday night, hoping that maybe you'll meet a guy there with whom you can have a real relationship, someone who will appreciate you for who you are, someone who will take you seriously, this is what you wear. So I want to suggest that Laura is not shallow or stupid, but Laura is confused because society is giving women a very, very heavy, I wouldn't even say a single message, it's a double message, that you should be able to present yourself physically and still be looked at internally. And I just haven't observed that it works so well. And perhaps I think where this confusion was most evident was when I was in a young campus in the late 70s, and Playboy came to campus to do a special feature edition on women of the Ivy League, which I have heard they have done on numerous occasions since. I didn't know that at the time. So here I am, this big pseudo-intellectual big side on the Yale campus, okay, thinking, what are they wasting their time for here? You know, go to Penn State, you know, go to... <laughs> Sorry, that's insulting me. <laughs> you know, go to, go to Ohio State, go to some state university, maybe there you'll find, but we, Yale women, you know, we're all pretty snobs, you know, we, we're intellectual, we're not going to lower ourselves to this kind of stuff. So they set up an office on campus and they offered different amounts of money to be for women who were going to be photographed in different uh, states of dress or undress, better put maybe. And, um, and I don't think it was just the money, because most students at Yale were okay financially, but I want you to know there was a lineup outside of that office. And of course then we had the feminist protesters also, which I should have been one of, but I didn't know about it at the time, I guess. Now, after this happened, I really had to ask myself three questions, and I'm asking them again right now. First of all, why did Playboy want to do this? Second of all, why did these women agree to participate? And thirdly, who bought the magazine? And I'm going to, I'm going to give you my answer to all three questions. 
Why did Playboy want to do it? Well, I might be cynical, but I think that Playboy wanted to say that we can degrade even the most intellectual woman and turn her into a bunny. Why did the women agree to participate? Because they wanted to prove that I can be brainy and sexy. You think that us brainy women are a bunch of, like, you know, masculine, you know, butchy-looking, tough intellectuals? Uh-uh. I can be brainy and sexy. Who bought the magazine? I don't think anybody who cared one whit about those women's brains. I'm just picturing this scene right now, like in a subway station in New York City, you know? And a guy's pulling the Playboy magazine off the rack and going, Wow, I should like to have a philosophical discussion with her. You know, I don't think so. So, like, who are we kidding? Now, I want to suggest, by the way, that this confusion about who we are doesn't have to be as extreme as somebody who's willing to be photographed for Playboy. I think it's endemic. And I think it's in the Orthodox world. And I'm hoping I'm not stepping on any toes, but I'm a kind of call a state a state type person. But I think that we're all aware that one can be an Orthodox Jew and cover what you're supposed to cover and still be 100% attention attracting. It's called the front provocative look. And I want to suggest that, that our daughters, our girls, who are falling for this kind of stuff, are suffering from the exact same confusion, but they're playing it within the rules. They're playing it by the rules, but the confusion is so present, and so their intentions thwart the purpose of the rules, and you end up wearing the high neck lines and the sleeves and the skirts and the whole world, and you're 100% provocative, because everything's tight. And when you lift your arms, you see four inches of your stomach, and your belly button might be pierced to boot. And it's all coming from the same confusion about who are we really, body or soul? How do we want to be seen? Now, the most common argument that I always get from people on this topic is, what does it matter how other people see me? I've meditated on myself. I have reached the conclusion that my message is, I am a soul. I am an internally defined person. I, I feel that my greatest attribute is the kindness that I do for others. And at the same time, you know, it's summer and it's hot. And I happen to have a good body, and I feel good about it, and I want to, you know, kind of rejoice in it a little bit. And so I'm going to dress how I want to dress. And if I walk past a construction site, and the men can't call and whistle, actually calls me that other commercial I saw on TV in America here, which is a great one, which, which the guy at, at, this, at his uh, lunch break peels off his shirt, and all the female women in the offices yell down and start catcalling and whistling to the construction worker. Okay. Unfortunately, it doesn't usually work that way. But if all the guys catcall and whistle, like, what does it matter? I know who I am. It doesn't affect me. What does it matter what message I send out to other people if I know who I am? Now, what I want to suggest, and I think this is linked from sociology and other disciplines, is that no matter how much we think we know who we are, what other people think of us very much affects that self-image. There is, I can't remember the name of the sociologist who came up with this uh, theory, but there's an idea called um, so, uh, symbolic interactionism. And symbolic interactionism can be summed up by this statement. I am who I think you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. 
which basically means I become the person that other people see me as. Now, those of you who doubt this, I want to give you the most extreme example I can possibly think of of people I've met in my life where somebody became how other people saw her. I met a woman at age 38 who, no, actually, I met her at 42. But for the first 38 years of her life, this woman believed she was what they then called mentally retarded, and she wasn't. What had happened was, way back when, when she was in school, and they didn't have the knowledge about learning disabilities, I don't give any special ed people in the crowd here, okay, they, didn't, they couldn't diagnose and detect learning disabilities as they do today. So they had one out of every five kids, it said, has a learning disability of one sort or another. But then when they couldn't, if you had trouble learning, you either got labeled as disruptive, if it resulted in disruptive behavior, or lazy or stupid. So she got the stupid label. And it was generally concluded by all of her teachers and her parents as well that she actually had a mild form of retardation and she'd be educable to a certain degree, but you know, college is going to be out of the picture and you know, hopefully can get her a nice job, you know, taking groceries at the supermarket and she can support herself. Okay? 38 years. She carried this label with her and this is how she saw herself because this is how the whole world saw her. I'll never be able to exceed, no point in ever taking lessons or anything. That's it. When she was 38, apparently she underwent some new testing and discovered, lo and behold, she had no, no, no uh, mental retardation. There was no sign of brain damage. Maybe even an MRI. I don't know what they did. And she had a learning disability. And we could be worked with. Like, no big deal. And all of a sudden, the stigma and this label of being mentally retarded, as they called it then, mentally challenged, was removed from her. And she, she like, woke up and basically realized, I'm normal. And everyone she was meeting was treating her as normal because no one was told anymore that she was mentally retarded. So she said, oh my gosh, I've always wanted to learn French. And she went out and she took French lessons. And I've always wanted to learn guitar. And she came to me, the time I met her, she came to me to take guitar lessons. And she learned how to play guitar really nicely. She just blossomed. She completely changed into a different person and she also converted to Judaism. It was quite unbelievable, the transformation of this woman. This is what I mean by I am who I think you think I am. Now, my husband once unconsciously um, employed this principle to change his self-image for 25 hours. During our dating, I just want to see how this works. During our dating period, I guess part of the hazing procedure to see if I was the appropriate one for him was uh, he wanted to bring me to Moshav Modi'in in Israel. Now, do any of you know what Moshav Modi'in is? It is a settlement of Shlomo Karbach followers. Okay? So basically what you have is a bunch of very colorful ex-hippies, you know, now varying degrees of orthodox, um, and a very colorful, funky place with a colorful, funky soul, and singing and dancing, and it's a very, very neat place. And my husband has always had strong hippie sympathies, even though he wasn't quite one himself. So we went to this Mossad for Shabbat. So my husband, who is a conventional dresser, I don't know if ever you've, ever you've seen the Rebison's husbands here of the soul, but you know, great hands, pinstripe shirt, white shirt, you know what I mean? The black velvet kippa, pretty straight, conventional looking guys. My husband went into some room to change into his Shabbos clothes, and I did also. And when we came out and I saw him, my mouth dropped open <laughs> because my husband was wearing white denim pants 
um, an embroidered Indian, like from India, shirt that kind of um, laced up here, you know, and a big white kippah with a rainbow around it. Okay? He looks absolutely adorable. I really like that look. I just wouldn't wash in my neighborhood. But <laughs> so I just looked at him and I said, like, what is this? <laughs> and he said to me, look, this is in essence what he said to me. If I come here dressed like a straight yeshiva bacher, you know, from Jerusalem, everybody here will understand that I'm one of these kind of straight guys, and they'll be warm and welcoming like they are to everybody, but they'll know I'm an outsider. And so they'll treat me to some degree as an outsider, and I will feel like an outsider, and I won't be able to really get in and partake of the energy of Shabbat experience on this Moshav. But if I dress like one of the Chevra, as it's called, the universal term for anybody who's in a Shomal Kabbalah saying, one of the Chevra, um, and there's a community, he said, people will immediately assume I'm one of them, they'll welcome me in as one of them, they'll treat me like one of them, and I will then feel more like one of them, and I'll be able to really get into the energy here, the Shabbat. So before I know it, somebody comes over to my husband, claps him on the shoulder, and says, you know, hey, holy brother, <laughs> come on, man, let's get high on davening, right? And so my husband is whisked off to this very colorful synagogue, brightly painted, and I'm following along, looking, looking, looking. I see my husband inside, and he's dancing, and he's singing, and he's just like, he's really into prayer. He's a very, um, you say, a very Hasidish uh, soul, you know, really loves praying, you know. I'm just looking at my husband like this and thinking, I don't think he could do this, and he's yeshiva in Jerusalem, you know. What he did was by deliberately manipulating his self-image for 25 hours, he accessed a different part of his spirituality by the principle of I am who I think you think I am. So self-image is not just something we contemplate and meditate as we twiddle our thumbs. So we have to really put a lot of energy into thinking, how can I dress and present myself in a way that will cause the social reaction for me to get treated in the way that I want to get treated so that I can become the person I want to become? And I'll give you one more example of this. This happened to me, and it was done not deliberately, unlike what my husband did. But when I was, um, I was in Jerusalem, and I was uh, not yet particularly so observant, but I went out to visit a newly married friend of mine in a religious neighborhood. So I put on a skirt and long sleeves, and you know, I think maybe even socks, I don't remember. I went out to this neighborhood, it was called Neve Yaakov. And Neve Yaakov at that point was an island in the middle of the desert. There was nothing else out there. So I drove out to Nevei Yaakov on his bus, you know, getting pelted by stones from the Arabs and Shulafat and whatever. And after a couple hours in Nevei Yaakov, frankly, we felt there wasn't much to do here. It was pretty boring. We visited with our friends. You know, there's nothing, nothing to look at. And we looked across the valley, and there across the valley was this quaint little Arab village with the minaret and the olive groves and the hills nestled into the hillside, the houses nestled into the hillside. So they looked at one another and said, let's go over there and check it out. And you have to realize that Israel 23 years ago was a different place than it is today. Then, this, you know, today this would be suicidal, literally, quite literally. I, you've probably read enough of the news over the last few years to know exactly what can happen to somebody who finds themselves mistakenly wandering into Ramallah, for example. Then this is just very, very stupid, okay? So my friend and I headed out of Neve Yaakov, walked down this valley, walked up the hill, and approached the village at the entrance of the village. We're now about a mile away from Neve Yaakov. 
and the nearest Jew. Um, a couple of kids came out of the village to greet us by throwing stones. And rather than taking this as a sign that perhaps we're not welcome there, we thought, you know, kids are the kids, kids like to throw stones, whatever. And we just kind of kept walking. And as we came very close to the entrance of the village, two young Arab men came out of the village who were taller and wider than us, okay? Now, does this sound like a good scene? <laughs> Nearest Jews a mile away, two Jewish women, two Arab men, right outside of an Arab village. And this could be the thing you read about in the newspaper the next morning. What happened, however, was absolutely amazing. And I wasn't, again, I wasn't even like so religious at that point. But what happened was amazing. These men took one look at us and recognized that if we are wearing skirts below our knees and three-quarter length sleeves in the summer, we must be religious somethings or others, because nobody would dress like this in the middle of July. And there's tremendous respect for religiosity in Muslim culture. Like, the basic thing is that the Arabs pick up all the American tourists and fool around with them, but you marry a good, sweet, sweet Muslim girl, you know that. And it's not so good and sweet, sweet and chaste and you kill her for the honor of the family. Like, I'm serious, they still do this. Even if she's raped, kill her. Okay? So they, they looked at us, they're religious, oh, these are religious girls? And they came over to us, and they were 100% respectful. And they said to us, excuse me, but um, you really shouldn't be walking around here by yourselves. Um, it's not so safe. Not everybody here is so friendly, they actually said. Um, can we please escort you back to where you came from? And they walked us part of the way back towards Nebe Yaakov until they felt we were safe. We were very lucky that they were the decent sort who choose to read social cues, right, rather than ignore them. But what was so fascinating about this was not even so much the impact that my dress, which was not even a part of me so much at that point, had on them, but the impact that their behavior had on me. Having walked many times previously through the Arab market in Jerusalem and having gotten a very different kind of social response, which if I can try and imitate it, goes something like this, you know, Hey, come here, you're so cute, I give you half price. You want to come for coffee? You know, this kind of thing, right? So having gotten that kind of social response in the past, and now suddenly getting a whole different social response about a man treating me with such respect and chivalry even, it changed how I felt about myself. There was an internal switch that got flipped at that moment. And I thought, like, whether or not I ever become religious, whether or not I ever put on a three-quarter length sleeve shirt or skirt again, this is the way I want to feel about myself, that I'm being regarded as a person. Now, when I talk about being regarded as a person and how we do that by how we dress and the social feedback that we invoke, many girls get kind of stymied, and sometimes we do also. It's one thing to talk about internal self-definition as kind of a vague thing, but what does it really mean? When you really nail it down, what is it? So I want to suggest to you, and I want to give you a story to illustrate it. I want to suggest to you that, that defining yourself internally means defining yourself as a part of you that can never be taken away. And that by definition, if something can be taken away from you, short of your life, obviously, it can't be the real you. And I'll tell you a story of a woman who I think had everything, more than anyone I can imagine, taken away from her. And how she responded to this. And to me, this woman personifies the kind of deeper internal self-definition that I'm trying to get at. To make a long story short, 
There's a woman in Israel who doesn't want her real name used, but it will be an autobiography of her published after she after her death. She should live many more years. But um, I'll call her Rebbe Deborah Cohen. Rebbe Deborah Cohen was born in Hungary, and at age 18 she was deported to Auschwitz, along with most of Hungarian Jewry. And there she was selected by Dr. Mendela, uh, not for the gas chambers, but for life, but for probably the most horrific life one could imagine, which was to be put in one of these huts of young women who reserved for medical experimentation. If you're aware of the barbaric things that he did without anesthesia to people, I, I personally cannot in my wildest more, and I have a really great morbid imagination. You know, all the things that have happened to my kids, God forbid, I have a son in the army now, and my mind can go absolutely crazy, okay? But in my, this, like, nothing comes close to imagining being in this hut in Auschwitz. She was operated on by Dr. Mengele himself. She miraculously survived. I'm just not really clear entirely what the purpose of the experiment was and what he did to her. And after the war, she made her way to the land of Israel. There she met and married her husband, and in a short time found out that she was apparently unable to bear children. Mengele had apparently sterilized her along with whatever else he did. And there wasn't IVF then. So she had to resign herself, a very devoutly religious woman, to never being able to bring more Jewish children into the world. So she said, if I can't bring more Jewish children into the world, I am going to foster as many handicapped, mentally and physically handicapped children as I can. Children whose parents don't want them. I will take them. I will raise them as my own. And at this time in Israel, life was very tough. I know of one person who actually ended up becoming pretty religious simply because his parents didn't have the food to feed him, so they sent him to yeshiva. Okay? Their parents just really didn't have the food to feed all their kids. A child like this was such a burden on families, particularly from more primitive countries. They didn't have special ed in these tent camps that a lot of them lived in. So these kids were deposited on her doorstep, kind of, and, and she actually took them in. This actually still unfortunately happens. I don't know if it happens in America, but my downstairs neighbor in my building is fostering a Down syndrome children who is basically left at the hospital by his parents. You know, we don't want him. And they just left him there, and she, she got him. She had a Down syndrome child who previously died, and this is her way of, I guess, nurturing a different Down syndrome child. She's a very special lady. So anyway, this is what this woman did. She is, lived in dire poverty in a tiny little two-bedroom house in a Moshav. And as you can see, these old Moshav houses look like they're tiny. They're tiny, they're smallest American apartment, even they call them little houses, okay? She had no hot running water, no washing machine. And yet, over the years, she took in over 20 such children and fostered them and raised them and educated them and turned them out into the world as, as self-reliant and productive adults as, as they were able to become. At one point, she had seven in a house at the same time. And these were children who still needed to be diapered and spoon-fed in their teens. We're talking about severely handicapped children. A friend of mine, when she came to Israel many years ago and was exploring Judaism for the first time, wanted to meet a holy Jewish woman. And someone suggested that she go up north and meet, meet Rebison Deborah Cohen. He said, no one knows about this lady, but if you want to see what holiness is, go up north and meet this lady. So she traveled up there, located her house, 
and sat down at his perpetually unpaved kitchen floor in this rickety old house of table, broken chairs, to have coffee with Reverend Deborah Cohen. And after hearing her whole story, which I just recounted to you, she saw very clearly why she was a holy woman, what holiness means in Judaism. It doesn't mean separating yourself from the world and meditating. It means just doing good. Tikkun olam, you know, making the world a better place, being other-oriented, doing the so She saw how this woman was holy. But she had another question. What gave her the strength to get through what she got through and come out so much on top? Think of all the other people who didn't. Think of the hospital, the mental hospital facility on the top of the hill of my neighborhood in Parnot in Jerusalem, which as of about 15, 20 years ago was populated entirely, almost entirely by Holocaust survivors. It was seen that this lady should have ended up there with everything she suffered, rather than being able to go on to contribute so much to the world. And not only would she contribute to it, but she wasn't even a shmata. I would at least expect to see a shmata. A woman has to heat up water in a pot and a stove to launder kids' clothes in the era before disposable diapers, please remember, you know. I would have expected to be a shmata when I met her in her 70s. This lady has a sense of humor. She's with it. She's lively. She's youthful. How did she do this? So my friend Sarah was fishing for a clue, and she asked Reverend Cohen, what was it like in Auschwitz? And Reverend Cohen said something absolutely amazing. Please, anybody who has a parent or a grandparent, a great-grandparent who was in one of the camps, do not take what she said literally. Do not be offended. She said it to make a point, not to be taken literally. We all know what kind of a place Auschwitz was. My friend Sarah asked her, what was it like in Auschwitz? And Reverend Cohen looked in her face, and said to her, Auschwitz was not a bad place. Sarah Boss didn't hear right at first, so she repeated the question. And again, Rebecca Cohen said very resolutely, Auschwitz was not a bad place. And my friend Sarah said she just lost it. And she said to her, how can you, of all people, possibly say that? And listen to what Rebecca Cohen said. You want to know what internal self-definition is? This is above and beyond. She said, I was there with a group of other young women from Hungary, and together we tried to observe all the mitzvot that we could. When Hanukkah came, somebody found wax and melted them down into candles, and we lit them. When Pesach came, somebody who had apparently realized that there would not be Haggadahs in Auschwitz, memorized her Haggadah on the cattle cars on the way to Auschwitz, so that even though it would be taken away from her in Auschwitz, she could recite it off by heart on Seder night, and everybody else could repeat it after her, and we could have some semblance of a Pesach Seder. And she said, more than that, she said, we did so much chesed for one another, so much kindness, we supported each other when we were ill. We deloused one another. We held each other up at roll call so we wouldn't be taken off to the gas chambers. We did as many mitzvot as we could in Auschwitz. So she finished speaking. She looked my friend Sarah right in the eyes, and she said to her, You know, you, who come from that beautiful suburb in America, with the nice houses and lawns and cars, and you had clothing, and you had food, and you had makeup. And life was so good, 
and it was so easy and so comfortable. But, she said, there were so many Jews there like you who didn't even know enough about Judaism to be able to keep a single mitzvah. Jews who didn't even know about lighting Hanukkah candles. She said, for you, that was a bad place. For me, Auschwitz is a good place. I was blown away when I heard this. Unbelievable that somebody could make such a statement. This woman knows so clearly that you can take everything away from me. Imagine what she looked like in Auschwitz. I don't have to describe to you. If she used a never mind past looks, social position, if she was once the synagogue youth group president, or if she was once a great dancer or athlete or musician or artist, anything that she once had that she could hang her identity on and point to and say, this gives me value, this is what makes me who I am, was all completely taken away from her. And some people really go crazy when that happens. They really lose it. And she said, but the part of me that's the real me is the part that can never be taken away. The part that can say, even in this hell on earth, if I can still shed some light, if I can still make this place a little bit better for the other people in it, then my life is worth living. And it's better for me to be here than to be in a comfortable place where I couldn't shine this kind of light. It's a very high spiritual level. But she's, she's you know, really hit the nail on the head about internal self-definition. That what I am is not by virtue of what has been given to me, but what I have to give. Not what happens to me, but what comes forth from me is what makes me who I am. And that means that I can be paralyzed in a wheelchair like Christopher Reeves, and if I can still offer wisdom and support and inspiration to people, my life is worth living. Do you know how many college students have told me they would commit suicide before agreeing to be a paraplegic? My own son told me that once. I hope he's outgrown that. Okay? There's a man who lives in Jerusalem who was 20 years old, was shot in the spine in a student riot, and is a paraplegic, quadriplegic, and exactly what he is. And he didn't commit suicide. He turned to God and to religion because he knew I have to just get more in touch with the part of me that I wasn't so in touch with before that can never be taken away. Because that's what I still have, I'll always have it, and that, and that alone is the real me. Now, I don't know what Reverend Cullen looks like. I have never seen her. But I'm just willing to bet that she's never walked into a department store looking for something slinky to wear. Because for her, that would be a form of self-betrayal. This is not who she is. Why would she want to attract attention to the most superficial dimensions of herself? When who she is and the power that she has lies so farther inside. Now we have a problem, right? We live in a world of so many, I say problem in quotes, because she all has these problems, but you know, we live in a world of so much abundance and so many good things. And most of us are nice looking and have nice clothes and makeup and jewelry. And the whole question is, how do we use everything that we've been given? Because, you know, what's the expression? You don't take a gift for us in the face or something like that. It's a gift. And beauty is a gift. And beauty is not meant to be squelched. But how do I use it in a way that says, I look good because I deserve to look good because of who I am inside, not because my looks give me my, my value? 
How do I look good in that more kind of compelling way? That rather than have somebody get stuck in a certain part of my body, that they're taking the whole of me and just think there's a beautiful person, not just a beautiful figure. It's a bit of an art. And some of it feels like a lost art, which makes me sad. But I do know many women who do have this art. And the results are very, very powerful. And the beauty that results, that I think is more powerful than the beauty that you see in the cover of Vogue magazine. Now, for the mothers in the crowd, I want to conclude with a few pieces of practical advice about how we can take these ideas and um, hopefully apply them to our relationships with our children, particularly our daughters, so they can emerge from this increasingly sexualized world that they live in with, God willing, some deeper sense of self still intact. First of all, never underestimate the importance of what we say to our kids and what we call them, our pet names. There's a world of difference between cutie and gorgeous and nisamala, which means like little soul. It's two entirely different things. And again, this will sound corny to older girls, but when your kids are younger at least, okay, so don't any older girls roll their eyes here or anything, okay? But, um, <laughs> but especially when kids are younger, saying to them, not just, oh, you look so cute, I love the way you did your hair today, but saying something like, I said to like an eight-year-old girl and it worked like a gem, you look so pretty today, it must be because of all the mitzvahs you've done, right? That song is getting a whole different message about what beauty is. That beauty is something more compelling, something that includes my outside and my inside, about personhood, not just about physical qualities. I remember a Rebison in Jerusalem once told me, she asked her mother if she's pretty. This woman is a grandmother, probably even a great-grandmother by now. She asked her mother, Mommy, am I pretty? And her mother said to her, Pretty is as pretty does. You're as beautiful as you teach. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't tell our daughters that they're also physically beautiful. But it's always be tied into something deeper, not made to feel that it's a separate thing. You look so beautiful. How appropriate, you know? That your beautiful outside and that's your beautiful insides. The power of this nickname. Rabbi Kellerman tells a story in his book about a fictitious family called the Gordon family. I've been informed, I think it's actually about his own family and his own son. Um, all of us authors do that. We disguise our own true stories. <laughs> so um, he tells a story, whether it's him or not, but this family who are going on a trip, and all the children, of course, are told, use the bathroom before you go, right? Ten minutes into the bus ride, you know, a little six-year-old kid, okay, who they nicknamed Sadiq. Sadiq means a little righteous, holy one, right? So his nickname was Sadiq. He was a really good little boy. So all of a sudden, Sadiq says, Daddy, I have to go. So he goes, well, why didn't you go before? I didn't have to go then. I have to go now, right? So they're an hour and a half away from the destination. It's an express bus, and there's no bathroom on the bus. Right? So little Sadiq's got to hold it in. So, you know, he's beginning to moan and groan. He's getting a little bit doubled up. You know, finally the bus gets to where it's supposed to go. The kids run off the bus, run to the public bathroom in the central bus station. It's boarded up and closed for renovations. Poor little Sadiq, he said, he's like twisted up like a pretzel now, limping down the street, you know, as his brothers and sisters look desperately to find him a bathroom. Finally, one of the sisters comes back and says, I found your bathroom, I found your bathroom. He says, where is it, where? She says, it's in this place called the bar. He says, what's a bar? She says, oh, you know, it's a place where like, people listen to loud music and get drunk. 
And he stops dead in his tracks and says, I can't go in there. She says, why not? He says, I'm a Saudi. So think about what we say to our kids, what we call them, and you never know how powerful it's going to impact them. Next suggestion I want to make is a little bit harder, but it concerns the media. I know you live in a world of billboards and TVs and magazines and everything. As much as you can limit the impact of the media upon your children, you're going to be sparing them such angst later in life. The whole media is based upon the premise so that if I can make somebody's self-esteem superficial enough so that I can create insecurities and anxieties in them, then I can sell them a product to alleviate their insecurities and make money off of them. If everybody felt really good about who they were inside, we wouldn't have as many ads for body sculpting. Do you see what I'm saying? I want to quote you a piece of research that was done on the effect of television, particularly on body image and eating disorders. The island of Fiji, in the South Pacific, I believe, received electricity only in 1985, and only the TV in 1995, 10 short years ago, television came to Fiji. Before TV came to Fiji, most Fijians had large physiques. A large physique was considered beautiful, and people were generally content with their body shapes and sizes. Within three years of watching American TV, three-quarters of Fijian teenagers felt that they were fat. Sixty percent of them had started dieting, and the bulimia rate quintupled. It went up five times. So we have to realize that sometimes even in the most innocent stuff, our girls are being seen some pictures of impossibly thin models who in real life are quite possibly anorexic. I just read a whole book in, his, in Hebrew in Israel called The Beautiful Women, interviewing um, a whole bunch of models, dancers, actresses who all had eating disorders and how they all talk about how it stems from an empty or absent sense of self. How they feel that under the camera when everyone's twisting and adjusting their clothes and everything, like their insides just kind of aren't there. Okay? And the last two suggestions I want to give you actually come from a non-religious woman named Stephanie Levine. Stephanie Levine, as part of her graduate work for Harvard, moved into Crown Heights to study the adolescent development of the Bubbisher girls. And she wrote a fascinating book about it, which I really recommend that you read, called Mystics, Mavericks, and Merrymakers. Okay? And she did not end up becoming Lubavitch, as of course everybody hoped she would, and she did not end up becoming Orthodox at all. But she did leave the community after a year of living there with a very, very profound respect for its way of life and being very moved. She said she cried the day that she left Crown Heights, she writes in the book. And what she noticed there was unbelievable. She had gone in assuming that these teenage girls were going to be um, victims of very low self-esteem because they live in a patriarchal, male-dominated society in which women's role is mostly regulated to the home and, and obviously this girl was suffering from low self-esteem. And on the contrary, she discovered that they scored higher and all test of self-esteem than your typical American liberated female. What could account for this? She's very intrigued. 
So she accounts it to two, she attributes it to two things. First of all, she said, they live in a gender separate society. Boys and girls have very little social interaction, not much to do with women, don't go to school together. And she said, I don't recommend this for the larger world. I don't believe, I believe in colored education, she said, but I do believe that girls particularly need time out from all the sexual jockeying that takes place between boys and girls, all the being rated by them and wanting to approve them and perform various things for them that they want done, and et cetera, et cetera, to the point where their whole sense of self is basically hinging upon how many boys attention you can get, et cetera. She said it could be summer camps, it could be a semester away. We have to create islands in our girls' lives so they can just interact with other girls and develop a sense of self as independent of male approval. Which is why, as Carol Gilligan and other researchers have noticed, it's one of the reasons why girls' self-esteem begins to plummet at age 10. As they approach puberty, all of a sudden their self-esteem declines sharply. And she didn't see that in the brothers' community at all. The second thing, and my last suggestion that Stephanie Levine said, is that the Lubavitch community focuses very powerfully on the soul of every individual. Each girl is considered unique. Each girl is considered special. And each girl is considered to have a spiritual power within her to the point where her lighting shabbos candles could save the world. And so even the girls who went completely off she interviewed the Buddhist girls who were completely off, you know, from where they were supposed to be, according to the husband community. They were living in strip joints and like, you know, the real rebellious ones. She said, even they still have this amazing sense of selfhood, which even in somewhat degrading occupations prevented them from being exploited and abused. Even though they chose to work as a wages in a strip joint and the groping and the stuff that goes on, nevertheless, they still maintain a strong sense of self. They're still engaged in deep spiritual arguments, really heartfelt things about what's the purpose of life, what should be doing here. The soul is constantly emphasized. And we can certainly do that with our own children. And actually, one more piece of advice, this is the hardest one. I almost hesitate to say it sometimes. But I think as any mother knows, children learn far less from what we say to them than who we are. They learn mostly through osmosis. And having a role model of a mother who looks good because she deserves to look good, but is not seen fretting about the fact that, oh no, I can't find my mascara, how can I go out of the house, or, you know, oh, look at my wrinkles, and oh, I is over concerned with these things, while still taking care of herself, still putting herself together, putting on makeup she wants, looking good, but in a way that of a sense of dignity and self-respect, not with anxiety about my outsides are failing. It's perhaps the most powerful gift we can give our kids. My mother was a type of woman like that, and she gave me more than anything else the belief that who I am really counted, and also the belief for that matter that the whole world can be wrong and I can be right. I can have a different opinion from everybody in the world, but it doesn't mean that they're right and I'm wrong. They could all be crazy and I could be right. Now in her life that meant Everybody else is Republicans and we're the only Democrats in town, <laughs> okay? But in my life, it translated into other things. Now, I didn't become the woman that my mother envisioned for me. She didn't imagine me becoming an Orthodox Jew and moving to Israel. 
But ironically, it was her very influence, the very belief in me that said, you can be right, and you have to have your own internal compass about what's right and what's wrong, and you should follow what you think, that allowed me to make the choices that I did, which have left me being actually very happy. So I want to give you all the blessing that by working on ourselves and constantly instilling this kind of very deep spiritual self-image within ourselves, and we're then able to radiate it outward, influence our daughters, and hopefully have them emerge from the world that we live in, becoming who they really are able to be. I thank you very much. <laughs> if anybody has any questions, I'd be happy to take them. Yes. Gravity is taking its toll, you know. You definitely feel like, no, no, you know. But, and after a while, at a certain point, you realize, like, you know, it's just inexorable. It's going to happen. And maybe I can find a way to kind of go with it gracefully and feel comfortable in that role. You know, like, I, I look at people a lot in airports. And technically, nobody I've seen in an airport has their natural hair color, because very few women today do. Everything is streaked or dyed or whatever. And one time, I just saw this lady, and she just seemed to be the happiest person I'd ever seen in all people in airports. And she had gray hair. And I always wondered if it was a coincidence. I just wondered if there's something to do with the fact that she didn't feel the need, and I'm, I'm not against coloring hair, please don't get me wrong, I'm really not, but like, whatever makes you feel good. But the fact that she, really unusual in our society, didn't feel the need to do that, I wonder if there's somehow as part of this a, a self-acceptance that that later to radiate that. Right. Yeah. 
But again, I've seen so many Debitsons who are beautiful, like really, really beautiful. And there are other types of people who people will be drawn to and be engaged. But they're beautiful in a way that says, I don't want to draw attention to my outside, but to the totality of who I am. And it's so much more of a compelling beauty, even. It's so, it's so much more compelling. So I don't think it means forfeiting beauty or caring about what you look like. It's kind of how you do it. And there are subtle, there's a subtle line between looking good in a way that draws attention to my outside and looking good in a way that draws attention to the entirety of me. And that's what I think we have to kind of think about. Sometimes I'll tell teenage girls when they ask me about this issue, you know, like, you know, am I radiating externality, internality? I'll say, you know, put on what you want to wear for the day. Your makeup, the whole works. Put your hands over your eyes. Go walk in front of a full-length mirror. And when you're standing in front of the full-length mirror, take your hands off your eyes all at once and just see where your eyes go. And if your eyes get stuck on a certain part of your body, or on your blue eyelids, or some, something you know, physical, then maybe something there is just standing out too much and overshadowing you as who you are. But if your eyes take in the whole person and say, wow, there's a pretty girl, the whole of her, then I think that's closer to the ideal that I'm talking about. You know, I got once interviewed for this um, a BBC radio program on fundamentalism. So I'm not quite sure how this happened, but I got nominated to be the representative of, of fundamentalist, ultra-Orthodox um, Judaism, you know, in Jerusalem, the woman, right? So the whole thing was a laugh to me, okay? But I, I played along. I thought, yeah, I'll give, him, I'll give him something to think about, you know? So the interviewer was pre-recorded. The interviewer was recording equipment to my living room. We sat down, pulled the microphone, and he posed the question to me. He says, why do you religious women cover yourselves up so much? And I guess somehow just the right words come to mind. And I said, because I don't like to be invisible. Now, if any of you have read, for example, Jermaine Greer's description of sitting in a restaurant dressed more modestly and not being able to even get a waiter's attention, where he's very happily waiting on the 25-year-old with a miniskirt at the next table, you know, Who's invisible? You know, she's invisible. So this is exactly what this guy said to me. He said, but by covering yourself up, you're making yourself invisible. People don't look at you as much. And I said, well, actually, I feel that if I wore less, people would look at me a lot more maybe because they wouldn't be seeing the real me. But when I wear more clothes, I actually feel that I am more visible. I think that's kind of what it's about. I want to just maybe also just throw in a last word of encouragement if there are any mothers here who are struggling with their children over areas of dress. You know, it's very hard, you know, when you take your nine or ten year old girl shopping and she pulls something off the hanger and you say to her, this makes you look like a tramp or whatever, and she says, but mommy, all such big girls look like tramps. You know what I mean? It's a little, it gets a little bit difficult, you know? But I want to tell you that um, I've, we've had struggles actually with more of one of my sons actually than my daughters over the issue of self-presentation. And I talked to him about it for a long time and he's just wearing clothes I just felt were atrocious, too cut off, too tight, just like couldn't stand the way this kid looked. I actually got to the point where I refused to launder one of his shirts because I said, I hate this shirt so much and you want to wear it, you wash it. It's, it's, you know, whatever. And you know what? He didn't change 
what he was wearing. And I would say things to him like, you know, it's such a shame. I know you're such a beautiful boy inside, but I think when a girl sees you, she's just going to see you outside and not get past it, you know? And this is going on for months and months, and it's not changing, it's not changing. And about six months later, I overhear him on the phone in a conversation with a friend. And the friend apparently is talking about some girl that he's interested in. And I hear my son say to this friend, but what do you think she's really interested in? Your outside or your inside? <laughs> and I was sitting in this other room, and I just went like, <laughs> So I really believe that, you know, I, you know, I know that I went through my stage. A lot of people, they're going to wear what they want to wear at different ages, and there's not going to be a whole heck of a lot you can do about it. Because even if you say you can't wear that in the house, I'll change it them all. You know what I mean? But I think, um, I think by instilling the values at a young age, Selling, selling a little child, you know, who's walking around the house naked. You know, sweetheart, you have an adorable little bottom there. But you know what? When you put more clothes on, it's easier for me to see your neshama. That that will resurface when they go through their thing. And I'll just end with this very last story that just happened in Toronto. I just came from Toronto. So I'm staying with a religious friend of mine, and they have a carpool. And they get stuck in traffic right, and right next to a billboard at car level on a bus next to them. They were there for 20 minutes, stuck next to this bus, and the billboard featured a, a topless woman facing away from you. And then there's a whole semicircle of men who are all standing there looking at her from the front, even though you don't see her front. And there's these like, little religious boys, you know, like six, eight, nine, ten-year-old boys sitting here in this van with this picture like right in their face in the window. So she said the first time this happened, there was a lot of giggling and it was pointing, there was a lot of discussion. So she called up all the other mothers when she got home and said, I just want to tell you what happened. And you know, she said, no, you can deal with this however you want in terms of explaining to your kids or whatever, whatever it is you want, to, how you want to approach this issue. So she herself approached it by talking about, you know, do you think when a woman's dressed like that, you know, what do you think people are staring at? What do you think they see? Do you think they can really see who she is inside? Do you think that maybe she had a shirt on? You know, people will be able to see more who she is as a person. And, and the kids really got this idea. They really got it. So what happened, about three days later, the exact same thing happened. They got stuck in traffic once again next to the same kind of bus with the same billboard in the window, right? And this time, instead of all the giggling and the pointing discussion, the boys just looked at it and they just, like, looked away. They didn't, they didn't want to see a woman... It was an eight and nine, ten-year-old boys. They didn't want to see a woman who was just showing herself as a body when they knew that she's really a neshama. And I was very blown away by this. You know? So, if we instill sensitivities in ourselves and transform to our children at a young age, again, they're going to do what they want to do when they're teenagers, but I really believe that that consciousness is there and, um, and it will stay with them for their lives. And they'll come back. Thank you. Um, I just want to encourage everybody to um, stay, to move, socialize. There's a lot of donated food from Elite Kosher Catering, the Stal Parav, that I would love for you to enjoy, and especially fruit, which will end up going bad. And um, there are books for sale that Gila will sign. We have Head to Heart and Magic Touch. Right. And she already sold out of Outside Inside, but of course it's available at any Jewish bookstores and on Amazon. And on Amazon. Amazon and, right. and, you know. So, and please feel free to come up and ask further questions and stay as long as you'd like. Thank you for coming. Thank you.